So this is the inaugural episode of the In Development podcast, and I am Simon Ludgate, the host. And with our very first guest, we have Andy Tudor. Uh, Andy, why don't you introduce yourselves to our listeners? Yep. Hi, I'm Andy Tudor. I'm the creative director at Slightly Mad Studios. And Slightly Mad Studios, of course, makes lots of exciting games, including the most recent versions of the Need for Speed franchise. Isn't that correct? Yeah, so we worked on the Need for Speed Shift titles, and we've just recently released the Test Drive for iRacing Legends titles. So, you know, two of the biggest racing franchises and two of the longest-running racing franchises that there have been around. So yeah, we worked on those, and we're currently working on our current title, which is Project Cars. Well, let's start off with the Need for Speed franchise. How long have you followed that franchise? Were you there for the very first version of the game, or did you kind of pick yeah. it up later on? <laughs> so, well, I mean, I'm relatively young. I won't give you my actual age, but you know, I'm relatively young. So I remember not too long ago seeing the 3DO version of Need for Speed. I was out shopping, and there was a game store... And they'd had a huge, like, HD TV. This was, like, back in the day when HD TVs were not really seen. You still mm-hmm. had your huge television in your front room. No one had a flat screen in those days. So this was, like, a really big deal, seeing this huge HD 46 or 50-inch television. And on it was running this racing game where it was out on the new 3DO console, which was kind of disc-based as opposed to cartridge-based. Mm-hmm. So the graphics were absolutely phenomenal. This was a game that you had never, ever seen before. This kind of clarity and you're driving into the screen, which sounds crazy now that like, wow, the car was driving into the screen. But, you know, it wasn't like that back in the past. It was always top down or, you know, using like F-Zero on the Super Nintendo with the Mode 7 chip. It wasn't as visceral and realistic looking and the clarity on the image was amazing so i remember need for speed being one of the first true examples of wow this is the new generation of games is going to be like it's going to be all 3d and cool and it's like it's real life you know so yeah i've been a massive fan of the need for speed franchise since being a kid and the same with Test Drive. The last game that we released was, I think it was the 15th anniversary of Test Drive. So again, both series with really, really long histories, umpteenth number of titles being released, like maybe even one a year. They've really kind of stood the test of time, those franchises. Now, have you been a racing fan since before playing those franchises? I know you mentioned F-Zero, and I was a huge fan of F-Zero, and even Mario Kart back in the days. Was Need for Speed sort of your intro to racing, or were you a big racing fan before that? Oh, no. I mean, back when I was a child, I had the ZX Spectrum and the original Nintendo Entertainment System and things like that. So one of my first examples of racing was OutRun in the arcades. You know, the classic Ferrari and the girlfriend in the passenger seat and uh, (laughs) magical sound shower as the music. That was probably one of my first racing experiences. And then after that, it was games on the Spectrum. There was a game called Continental Circus, which was quite famously a mistype. It should have been Continental Circuit, but there was a translation issue. (laughs) Uh, So it was then Continental Circus. And then Lotus Esprit Turbo Challenge, Lotus Turbo Challenge 2 on the Amiga, like going all the way through. So no, you know, I just mentioned Need for Speed on 3DO, but no, that kind of came in maybe halfway through my video gaming history. It's been with me for a very long time, video games and racing. And has racing always been your favorite genre of video game, or would you prefer a different type in addition to, or even more so than racing? Well, a little bit of history. So my dad 
used to be a college lecturer in electrics and electronic technology. So oh, that, here, and I thought you were uh, about to say he used to be a racing driver. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I'm an only child, so you know when I wasn't playing out on the streets, my dad was bringing home these cool new consoles and technology and things like that. So I kind of grew up with computers and video games, things like that. So no, I mean I played every type. You know, I wouldn't say racing is my favorite. I wouldn't say that fighting games are my favorite or RPGs. You know, I play I play everything. If I look at my shelf currently of what I've got to play at the moment. I'm currently playing Star Trek Online. I'm playing the Forza Horizon demo that just came out, Resident Evil 6. Still got Mass Effect 3 to finish. Maybe an arcade game like Mark of the Ninja. So I'm playing every single type of game. Playing Tekken Tag at the moment. It's the first Tekken game I've played in maybe 10 years, but I've played all the other fighting games like Soul Calibur and Street Fighter and things like that. So it's just part of me. I'm just an addict for games, I guess. So racing games have yeah. a particular passion, definitely. I don't think you get your hands as sweaty in any other genre than you do in a racing game, you know, trying to claw your way to the finish, gripping the controller as tight as you possibly can. But yeah, every genre is extremely enjoyable. So how did you go from being a big game fan, obviously a player of all sorts of different games, to being someone who makes games? So when I was young, I was good at art. I showed a prowess for being good at drawing. My dad, as as I said, had brought home the Amiga and things like that. And the Amiga had a program called Deluxe Paint 4 on there, which was, for people of my generation, maybe one of the seminal pieces of software for doing artwork on a computer-based medium. So I always wanted to do something with computers, something with art, and I did that all the way through my college. And then when I wanted to go to university, that was when there were big movies like Toy Story and Jurassic Park coming out. Mm. If you think of those movies, the focus is on computer-animated, computer-generated imagery. So when I went to university, I had my focus purely on going into the film industry. But at the same time, the PlayStation 1 had come out. And then you were seeing games like Final Fantasy VIII and VII, Metal Gear Solid, games which had really great stories, computer graphics in those as well. And I realized, no, what the hell am I doing? Why did I diverge away from games to kind of have this dream of working on film? No, games were my first passion. And by the time I'd ended my university course, I was dead set on working in games. I managed to get a decent degree out of the university. And from then on, I was actually headhunted by Sony to work at Sony Computer Entertainment over here in England. And that's it. It's, mm. it's been a, had a job in the video games industry ever since. So did you start off working as a, an artist? Yeah, yeah. It's a very shallow hierarchy in the video games industry. So there's three different disciplines, right? There's code, game design, and art. And there's various sub-factions of those, but uh, there's only really three main departments. And within those three departments, you have a junior, a normal guy, you know, your normal role, and then you have a senior and a lead. So there's only really four promotions you can get. So... I started off as a junior artist, and it was at a time when we had this brand new technology of PlayStation 2, which had just come out. Gone were the days of working in very simple 3D geometry. The PlayStation 2 was really, really powerful and uh, was capable of like so much more. And the university course that I'd just come out of had taught us a piece of software called Maya, which is mm -hmm, one of Maya. the 
industry standard pieces of software now. So I guess I kind of had a really good advantage over some other people who had not even touched the software, didn't know what it was capable of. So yeah, joined as a junior artist working on environments. Maya was capable of doing really, really good advanced physics simulations, but physics simulations that an artist could do as opposed to a programmer right. programming away. So I uh, did a few of those. And then remembering back again to how good Final Fantasy VIII and Seven were and Metal Gear Solid and things like that, I really wanted to do stories. And so I ended up moving over to the cinematics team and doing cinematics and cutscenes, you know, the bits in between the gameplay for, yeah, for a few years. So I worked on Primal, which was a game which was a bit like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And then after that, we then worked on 24, the video game of the TV series, which again, I was a massive fan of. I mean, I don't know anybody who yeah. hasn't seen episode of 24. And that's really important. If you really love something and you're really passionate for something, then you don't mind doing the extra hours. You don't mind going 24-7, polishing that last little thing that if you didn't have any true passion for the subject matter, you would not have gone out of your way to deal with. So yeah, both those titles I worked on were absolute dreams come true. And so now you're working at Slightly Mad Studios, is that correct? Yes. And so what sort of transition went from Sony to Slightly Mad? So I worked at a few other games companies in between. And one of those I worked at, I was working as the lead artist on a game. I was working on the user interface at the time, so just trying to work out what the visual representation the player was going to have for getting through to the actual design of the game. So I was there trying to make the visuals as appealing as possible and trying to work out, well, how many clicks is it to get to that feature that the lead designer had put in? And I just found myself just questioning the design again and again and again. Like, this may be clear to you, but it's not going to be clear to me. I'm not the designer. I'm not the guy who has the ideas in his head. I'm just the guy who's trying to make it look pretty and make it look appealing and make it clear to the player. And so I found myself battling and battling with the design of the game and battling with how some ideas are very, very complicated, but you need to get them across to a very casual player. And I just really started to question why I was making games that looked really pretty, but maybe were not critically acclaimed as being actually really good games to actually play. You know, the, could you tell us which game that was and who I, you were working well, it was with? Never released. It was never released. Oh, it was never released. So yeah, and you know, looking back, I can almost see why. You know, so yeah, so it, that really started to make me question: Why the hell am I just someone who's trying to make games look pretty when they actually play terribly? And that really mm -hmm. had a, that gave me a real moral conflict inside because you know, as I said, I'm remembering the days when I was a kid myself. I loved playing games, you know, and we're in a world now where. It's proof that a game doesn't have to look pretty to be a successful game. Look at lots of the games on your iPhone, I bet, aren't particularly pretty looking, but they are really, really addictive experiences. So the game design was there first and foremost. And then the style that is applied to that via the art team and the art direction is what attracts you to the game in the first place and what makes things, you know, visually appealing and wants you to keep playing. So I really wanted to just move over from being an artist to a designer. And that's when, as I moved from company to company, that's the direction I wanted to take. So you were focusing on the game design. Was it hard to, for example, apply for a position as a designer when you had most of your experience as an artist? It was more of a fluid change, to be honest. At Slightly Mad, we have a very open forum, a very open way that we talk to each other, a very shallow hierarchy, just like any other video game company, as I was saying. And so everyone is free to offer their opinions. 
and I guess maybe I just offered more, more than others or I don't know <laughs> the, opinions that, the, opinion, the opinions that I had other people thought were okay and stuff and so it was just a, an organic process that I actually moved over from art to design actually at Slightly Mad I can imagine it would be difficult for an artist to swap over to design but I've always said that game design and user interface design are probably the most closely tied in. The game design mm-hmm. is the idea, the user interface, and what buttons that you press on your controller are the interface to that design. And so, you know, it's very easy to say, okay, we've got this feature list here. How the hell is the player going to interact with that? And then go from there. And those two conversations can happen actually at the same time. So if you are, if there are other people listening to this who do want to move into game design but are maybe in the art discipline currently, then I would say user interface or user experience, as it's called now, is probably a really good natural way in. What about people interested in game design, but perhaps in the programming discipline or, or even in a completely different discipline, such as a business management or human resources or some other non-typical entry point? Can you think of any suggestions for those types of people? Well, when I was growing up, there weren't that many ways into game design. There were no courses that you could take. You couldn't download the Unreal Engine and start playing around with that. You couldn't grab a copy of Unity and start playing with that. You couldn't make games in your bedroom like you can. Well, in the very early days, yeah, but you couldn't make games like you can nowadays with the indie arcade scene or whatever. So if you do have aspirations to be a game designer, there are so many opportunities out now. You know, you can literally download the Unreal Engine, play around with the editor, make a level, submit it, put it up on your website and show it off to a company. One of the good things to do is obviously rip a game apart. Take a game and then write a huge document on what works, what doesn't work, the systems that there are there, how you would improve it, and then take those systems and then make your own game and put it up for other people to look at. So there's many different ways in now. There's so many games design courses. They're all over the world now, and they don't take that long to actually do, but they do teach you the basics of psychology of game design, architecture, things like that. So when you're making a level, you don't make huge open spaces one after another. You know, you make small spaces that make you feel confined, and then you put a door there, which you're supposed to go through, but the real door is actually behind you. Like little psychological tricks what keeps you addicted nowadays there are a lot of free-to-play games so business model definitely comes into it so if you are in a different area like business or accounting or something like that then i'm sure working out how to keep players coming back by buying things from your store or what things should be attractive to players to keep them coming back is uh, there's so many different ways to to get in nowadays and you mentioned these new gaming courses, or I'm wondering if you have any opinion on how, sort of how valid these courses are in terms of getting into the industry. If someone just does these courses, can they expect to get a job? There's certainly a degree of criticism where these courses are sort of following in a lot of other educational pathways where they produce more grads than there are jobs. Do you think there's a similar sort of situation with these gaming colleges that the colleges are kind of in it for themselves? Let's produce grads because people want to learn this stuff but there's not actually any jobs for them when they finish i'm sure that definitely happens i'm sure that there are lots of colleges and universities or companies that will just happily take you on and teach you simply because you're paying them but ultimately just because you have a qualification from a course doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a job if your cv your resume came through then we would take a look at that 
that basically shows us that you can learn and potentially mm-hmm. it shows us that you are capable of learning, that you are capable of retaining information and utilizing it in maybe whatever coursework that you've done. You have a very basic skill set. But, you know, ultimately, just like an artist would submit a portfolio or a programmer would give an example of code that uh, he's worked on, the best thing that you can do is have something to show, something that you can turn up with on the day and go, look, guys, go to this web page. I've got this cool little flash game that I made on the course, or I learned these skills on the course and I went home and I made my own Unreal level something to show off you know shows that you have applied yourself shows that you didn't just take the course to get the qualification to expect a job out of it it shows that you really are passionate about it especially if you've taken something home and worked on it in private during your own hours that to me that shows that you have the same love for video games that i do it shows that you just want to go home and work on games 24 hours a day you know so you've got that same addiction that i talked about earlier that we do so something on your portfolio is more likely to give you a better chance than just saying that you've attended a course now you give examples of things like making levels or making flash games it seems that for many game designers there's very heavy reliance on art skills and programming skills in order to get their craft out to be seen by someone else would you ever take someone seriously if all they've ever done is written a design document if somebody writes a good design document there are certain things that you would need to put in there i mean we have a template ourselves and it covers absolutely everything So if you are doing your own game design and you have covered these yourselves as well, then potentially you do have the skills and you do have the mindset required to maybe get an interview or something like that. So no, I wouldn't say that if you've just written a design document, you have no chance compared to somebody else who's actually made a level and things like that. But admittedly, it's a lot harder to read through a design document than to play a quick Flash game. They must have a very different impact when you're evaluating. True, but if you've covered all the bases and they all make sense, then that to me says, okay, this guy understands games. This guy knows what makes a level. This guy knows what would make an addictive, what we call the loop, you know, that loop Mm -hmm. that you continually go into. You have 10 energy, you do all the moves that take up all the energy you wait for the energy to restore and then that keeps you playing again and you will level up that loop that you constantly are in so like on our design templates we have the x statement which is what is the single sentence that sums up the experience of your game so think of it like a movie tagline so for the need for speed shift games it was the it was all about the driver so the x statement was something like the real driving experience and that meant that everything that we did in that game was always from the driver's perspective and that really helps you focus when you're making a game because when you're making a game you're coming up with these design ideas in say 2012 and the game doesn't come out until 2015 so it's very easy to lose track of how all these features coalesce into a product so having an x statement really kind of allows you to make sure that they are all focused so when it came to the camera movement in the game we were always thinking it from the driver's perspective and that's why we invented the uh, cockpit cam which allowed you to have first-person view, look around the cars through the driver's eyes. When it came to XP and things like that in the game, it was for all for doing things that the driver would do, like overtaking well or overtaking, you know, badly or you know whatever. So these were all things that the X statement really helped with. Who's your target demographic? Who's the competition? You know, if you are making a game, don't ever forget that the games player is probably not you. 
the games player is probably a 14-year-old kid who's getting it on Christmas Day for Christmas, <laughs> right? You know, and it's very easy to forget who you're making a game for. You should make it for yourselves, and it should be a game that you want to play. But ultimately, don't forget that there are a wide range of people out there, you know, and that range is getting larger and larger every day, from 14 to 50 years old now. So don't ever forget who's the target demographic and who else is out there. You know, if you come up with a great idea for a game, don't ever forget that also this is going to be your game on a shelf full of hundreds of other games so chances are that there's probably somebody else out there who is doing a similar thing to you it does feel like a lot of games these days are being made to feature up where they think oh you know we like shooters and we like zombies and we like racing cars how can we put all these things into a game because obviously these are the three secret ingredients that are going to make a stellar game yeah and they seem to sort of contrivedly put together these x statements how do you feel about that i'm guessing you approach game design from a different perspective <laughs> That's called magpie game design, right? Where you kind of go, oh, well, Gears of War's got horde mode, right? So we've got to have horde mode. Left 4 Dead was a really good game, so we've got to have co-op. You know, drop in, drop out co-op. And you're seeing that more and more. That's not to say that the games that do do that are bad. It's just that it's not a great way of designing your game, really. You know, it's, mm. it's absolutely fine to look at what everyone else is doing. I play lots and lots of games. So naturally, of course, I'll be inspired by somebody else's title, won't I? I'll look at a game and go, wow, that was a really good feature there. Yeah, we should definitely have that. But you can't just rip it off wholesale. You've got to see, hang on, is it appropriate for our game? When we were doing the Shift series, you know, we wanted people to be able to compare lap times with each other. It's like the old days of trying to get the high score. You know, you're trying to get a faster time than your friend. So having a way of messaging your friends and saying, I've beaten you, try and beat me back. It was a perfect fit for that type of game. But I can imagine it isn't a perfect fit in other types of games. So no, generally what my approach is usually, what have I not seen before? Like people have said that the racing genre is slightly stale. And I think that's rubbish. I think that's absolute nonsense because you can always come up with brand new ideas. And we certainly have done in our previous products. So, you know, when we're going into our current and future products, we're always thinking, no one's ever done this. Let's go off in this direction. Or, yeah, we've always wanted to get this feature in. So let's get it in there and let's do it better than anyone has ever done ever before. So I definitely want to ask you about the features of the need for speed because obviously with such a long-term franchise the game has a sort of core concept which is racing and then each iteration of the game does something a little bit different has some kind of feature some kind of focus be it different modes or different ways of obtaining cars or different ways of progressing through the game how did you look back the first time you started working on need for speed i guess shift was the first one you worked on yeah how did you look back at the need for speed series and what did you take from previous titles and what did you try to do new with your shift how did you want shift to stand out in the series so I think the one thing that sticks in my mind is that this, there's this idea of the superhero you in the game. Need for Speed is all about you being amazing and giving you constant feedback of that, no matter what title it is. So if you look back at Pro Street, you look back at Undercover, you look back at Most Wanted, you'll constantly have this reaffirming sensation throughout the game, whether that is you're gaining XP for something or your the heat is going up on you or you've leveled up somehow or you've unlocked a new car. You're constantly being treated like a god in that game. You can't do any wrong. When you're playing the first tutorial mission, they're set up so that you'll never fail them. So when you unwrap it on Christmas Day, you feel amazing and you think, oh my God, this game's amazing. And you sit down and you keep playing it. You know, after an hour or something, then you're hooked. You're really into the uh, the spirit of the game. 
So that was definitely one thing that we wanted to kind of keep in that particular title, especially since we were moving to a more solemn, a more serious genre by taking the cars onto official racing tracks. An official racing track, you know, you may like NASCAR or Formula One or something like that, and those are traditionally quite stat-based. They have a lot of personality with the drivers, but other than that, we're talking about lap times, we're talking about fuel strategy, we're talking about the tyre pressures and things that hadn't been in a Need for Speed title previously. You know, it was all about being chased by the cops or going along to illegal underground racing or something like that Mm -hmm. that kind of fast Mm -hmm. and furious mentality so we knew that you know if we were going to take the player on this journey that we needed to not alienate the core audience who were used to having that kind of superhero you mentality which is why we came up with the driver profile and aggression versus precision and things like that things that you would not normally have seen in a more kind of simulation style racing title and you know every game that we continue to do since then we always try to reevaluate the racing genre and kind of think okay what has been done what hasn't been done where do we want to take our games? You know, what new things can we do? How long would it take to actually implement that? Would anyone actually like that feature? Because you've got to remember that, don't you? As I said, you've got to remember your target yeah, audience. Yeah. You know, we can think of an idea, but if no one else thinks that's a great idea, then you've got to uh, nip that in the bud because unfortunately, you know, everything takes uh, money and time to make. Yeah, I mean, there does seem to be this sort of spectrum of racing games where on one end you have these sort of arcadey racy games where you drive over power-ups and get yep. rockets and missiles and shooting under your car, like Wipeout series. And yep. then there's this sort of other extreme of really hardcore simulation where, you know, you, you make one wrong turn or, or push the button a little bit too hard and your car goes spinning out of control and you've got to restart the whole race because there's just no recovery from it. I guess Need so for have- Speed is felt a little bit on the arcadey side where you're trying to sort of center that a bit. Yeah, we call it the racing spectrum. You're absolutely right. On the left-hand side, you've got Fantasy, which is your Mario Karts and Modern Nation racers and things like that. And then on the other end, you've got your die-hard hardcore simulators. So you've got like iRacing and Netcar Pro and R-Factor and things like that. And then just behind that are... Forza and Gran Turismo. People would probably call them sim racers, but they're not compared to what real sim racing titles are. Mm. You know, uh, the sim racing titles that I think you referenced there are the ones where they are actual simulators of cars, same as a flight simulator would be. So they are more... Still no power-ups in those either. (laughs) Right, yeah. But they are more tools than games. On the right-hand side, you've got the serious simulators. Behind that, you've got Forza and Gran Turismo. And then behind that, you know, moving over to the left, over to the fantasy category, that's where you get everything else with various degrees of fantasy or realism in there. So that's generally where the Need for Speed franchise has been. That's where you'll also find Burnout. That's where you'll also find Blur and Split Second and Fuel and Pure and all the other... uh, (laughs) racing games that there are and some of them obviously have more success than others but i would generally say with the exception of the need for speed franchise that it's the two extremes that are those are the ones that sell the most on the left hand Mm -hmm. side you've got mario kart on the right hand side you've got forza and gran turismo and in the middle is something that you may or may not like depending or you know maybe in competition with each other that particular year or you know that's that's where the risks are taken in that center section now you're currently working on a new racing game i believe right yes yeah project cars and so, where would you place that on the spectrum? 
with Need for Speed Shift, we were kind of right in the center, maybe a little bit to the right. With Shift 2, we kept moving to the right even closer, just below the Forza Gran Turismo kind of area. And with Project Cars, we are in the Forza Gran Turismo and moving into the sim category. You know, I would pretty much say that we are a racing simulator at the moment. But, you know, you've also got to remember that we want this game to come out on the Xbox and the PlayStation 3 and the Wii U. So we can't just make it a tool for racing. We've got to make it a game as well. That's why there's a cool career mode in there. And that's why everything will be unlocked out of the box. But then you can also play through like a quick season of things. There's stat comparisons with how many times you've gone off track and, and things. You can talk to your friends and become like a racing team and have team management features. You know, there's pit stops and things like that. We're doing it in ways that nobody else is doing them. So we are very much in that right hand sim category but you know we're also putting in lots of features that will appeal to a broad range of people now if you're making a game like this for multiple platforms you know you mentioned pc you mentioned a bunch of different consoles in addition to just porting it so it actually works on these consoles do you think it ever makes sense to change some of the underlying gameplay to appeal to the predicted target audience so if you were making the wii u version you might make the races easier you might make them more arcadey and you might have some kind of quick time button mashing mini game every time you stop in the pit would, would right. that ever make sense to you or does that just seem well, sort of heresy to make a game different across different platforms so first of all i can't say for other companies but we don't port the pc will always have an advantage over other systems absolutely it's the most up-to-date hardware the most up-to-date operating system the most up-to-date drivers all that kind of stuff so yeah the pc will always have an advantage but we always make the console versions simultaneously so that will get staggered as uh, development goes along you know usually the ps3 is like maybe a month behind but we work concurrently across all platforms so it's not a case of we make the pc version and then right at the last minute you know near the end of development we port it across to the other console so that's like one thing to just clear up quickly but you know the the other is that yeah you're absolutely right the difference in the platform is actually getting quite big now with the xbox you've got connect with the wii u you've got a tablet with the ps3 you've got move so there are very different ways of interacting with your games right now but you can't just put features in there if it's not appropriate for your audience so Mm-hmm. If we are on that right-hand edge of appealing to sim racing fans and then also having that broader appeal to a more casual audience, yeah, you're right. The casual audience, you know, when you go into the pits, could have some sort of mini game where you try to speed up the pit crew, some sort of button mashing quick time event or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, but the, the diehard, you know, sim racing guys will hate that. And we yeah, wouldn't exactly. want to do something that doesn't appeal to everybody or doesn't annoy one group so bad that they would never play the game. <laughs> you know? yeah. so, so, you know, we try to always remember who that target audience is over trying to make something which is very platform specific or will only appeal to one particular target audience. Now, I wanted to ask you your opinion on a feature that I've experienced many times in racing games, and I've heard You're some gonna criticism the lobbied to. It's going to be the rewind feature, isn't it? I, I don't know if it's called rewind, but I've heard it called rubber banding, oh, right, where okay. the AI racers always seem to be just a little bit ahead of you or just a little bit behind you, no matter how well you or badly you drive, so that if you can predict the AI and you know, oh, well, he'll always give me 100 meters to catch up and pass him, so I'm intentionally going right. to wipe out 100 meters before the end of the race, and then all I have to do is just 
hold the go forward button and I'll automatically win type situation yeah. where you can kind of game the AI. What's your opinion on rubber banding? Have you ever used it in your games? And do you think it's sort of an inevitable feature of video game racing? It's entirely appropriate for some games. Absolutely. Yeah. If you remember Chase HQ back in the arcades where you're trying to race after somebody and catch them before they get to the edge of the level, then you'd need rubber banding to give the player a chance. Otherwise, one mm-hmm. mistake, that it's just a reset thing, isn't it? You know, you make one mistake, you haven't got a chance in hell of catching that guy now. All you're going to do is press the start button and retry the level. So what's the fun in that? So rubber banding in that particular instance is absolutely perfectly fine. And if you can balance it such that it's not obvious that you are doing that, then the player will never know or, you know, it'll be so seamless that it'll just feel like you're constantly just battling with that guy and always, always one step ahead of me. But then you manage to get ahead of him and then he gets ahead of you and you have this back and forth which we, you know and that's what we call the bubble in our racing games we do the bubble in a very different way we think about the bubble as the guy in front of you and the guy behind you so the guy that you are actively trying to chase and you are trying your best to kind of slipstream him and then do like a really good overtake or like take him on the inside corner and then the guy that you see behind you in the rear view mirror and one mistake from you means that he overtakes you and then of course you've got a new bubble then so we don't do rubber banding in our particular game we try to make sure that the bubble is always persistent so you know in a multiplayer race then you can't change that you just hope that people are all of a similar skill level so that that bubble is continuous around the track in our single player games then yeah you know we have ai and the ai has i think it's about 15 to 20 different personality traits so things like aggression and stamina and risk-taking and things like that. And they change over time throughout the race. So a racer may be really, really good off the starting block, but then has really bad stamina. So over the course of the race, he will maybe get a bit slower or he'll start making more mistakes, things like that. So all that kind of adds variety and layers upon the experience that the player is seeing. Now, one of the biggest criticisms I have with rubber banding is that the enemy cars, in order to adhere to the rubber band, AI often sort of defy the laws of physics or, or yeah. you know, they, they turn in a way that your car simply cannot turn or they drive faster or, you know, they go full speed through a turn and they don't drift or slide off at all. They're like stuck on rails and boosh, they go right past you. Like, hey, wait a minute, there is no way that they're yeah. supposed to be doing that. Do you this. find it's more effective to lock the AI cars into the same rules that the player is locked into? I have a very vivid memory of this in Need for Speed Uncover, where I'm driving like one of the fastest cars in the game. It's like a Bugatti Veyron or something like that. And this police SUV just comes cruising up to me, like seemingly doing the same speed that my supercar is doing. You know, here I am. I've saved up my money or saved up whatever currency was in that game. I've saved up my hard-earned cash to unlock this car. And I wanted to get that car because I wanted to have an advantage. I wanted to, one, race that car because it's really pretty and cool and all that kind of stuff. But also, I wanted to be the godfather of that game and have the best car. And it's like having the biggest sword in an RPG, right? You just want to go Mm -hmm. up to monsters and just whack them with one slice, right? And here I was with a police SUV overtaking me. And that was really bad, I thought. But I'm sure the lead designer wouldn't mind me saying that because uh, other people noticed it as well. But yeah, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to keep it within the constraints of what is real and what doesn't. As I said, as long as a player doesn't notice it or as long as, you know, it feels right, 
it didn't have a good emotional resonance with me, basically. No, no. So. And now jumping back to Project Cars. Now, Cars isn't just about cars; it's an acronym for Community Assisted Racing Simulator, is it not? Well done. Yes, good for reading. Good for Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> now it says now Cars is, as I understand, it's community funded, right? So it's not the traditional developer publisher model. And one of the big issues that games are facing these days is, is especially Kickstarter is well known for having developers come out and say, "Hey, you know, screw the publisher. We're going to make a game that we want to make, and the gamers are going to fund it directly, and that way they can get the features that they want." Do you have any comments on your experience with community funding or Kickstarter in general? Well, I mean, I can't talk specifically about Kickstarter because you know, I've only ever funded projects that I've been interested in as opposed to doing a project mm-hmm. on there myself. But Kickstarter is very much like, here's an idea for something, whether it's a product or a game or a book that you're making or a board game you always wanted to make. And you put it out there and you basically say, look, if the people like this, if they want to see me make it, then give me some money. That's where the pledging comes in. We wanted to do things a bit different. We wanted to say, look... Gone are the days of coming up with a great game idea, sitting in the studio for three years, and then having the game finally come out and hoping that those ideas that you had three years ago are still valid and people actually want to buy your products. Games cost so much money to make nowadays, and you've really got to have like a track record of what you've done in the past. And the publisher has to have a window of opportunity three years in the future of what they think people might want to be playing. So it's not a broken model, but it's more and more difficult nowadays. And you're yeah. seeing that like the indie game scene are kind of saying, I've got this great idea for a game, I'm going to make it, and hopefully I will I can put it out there and put it on Xbox Live Arcade or the PlayStation Store, and it, and it does really well. So what we wanted to do was say, okay, well, similar to Kickstarter, here's our game idea. If you would like to see us make it, then here are some membership um, tiers that you can join. But when you join, we treat you like a member of staff. So when you join, you are part of the team. You can go backstage and see the game being made all day long if you want. You can go to the (laughs) portal and go to the forum and you can just sit there all day long just seeing the talk and seeing one of our car artists like making a car and then you can talk directly to the car artist and go, oh, great job. I think you've got maybe the headlights are a little bit wrong or whatever. We can (laughs) give you a version of the game right now you can play the game right this minute and the game has only we've just celebrated our one year birthday you know so people have been playing our game for one year already and it's not even out yet you know and there's plenty more features to go but what that means is people get to see how games are made which is really interesting for some people Mm, they also get to play our game right now they get to talk to us and feel invested they get to write bug reports i don't mean it like homework they naturally do it themselves just like you would do if you bought a game at retail and you were like hang on a minute this feels broken you could maybe go off to the neogaf forums or game faq forums like that and see if anyone else is experiencing this bug or you'd go to youtube and maybe post a video of the bug and things like that you know if you find a bug in our game right now report it and we'll fix it the game's not out yet so we've got plenty of time to fix that we can also ask you questions as i said there's no point having these great game ideas if you're forgetting who your target audience is so with the way that we're developing at the moment we can come up with these great ideas and then put a poll up and say does anyone think this feature's cool 
and we can gauge response from that and see whether we're on the right track. You know, already we've put some features off to the side or kind of said, oh, you know, those features we will potentially do as DLC then. Obviously, there's not a great deal of interest in those features right now. So we'll bench those and maybe come back to them later. Maybe we may just completely forget about them if no one else is really interested in them. And we get to do that during development. So that saves us so much time and it makes sure that the features that are in the game are 100%. As opposed to, you know, trying to get everything done for the milestone delivery that the publisher has told you, you've got to have that fixed, you've got to have that finished uh, or concentrated on that particular milestone and not having any feedback from the outside world, whether the thing that you've just put in is any good or not, really, or how that really resonates with players. You know, the way that we're doing it currently is we can talk to players right now. And that's absolutely fantastic. We just added multiplayer to our game. Now, multiplayer is one of those things that is my personal favorite because, mm. as I said, you know, when you're finishing a game and you're really, really proud of it and you're seeing the Metacritic scores coming in and all that kind of stuff, that's fantastic. Going into the actual shop and seeing it on the shelf, that's fantastic as well. But for me personally, it's going online, going onto Xbox Live, throwing the headset on, and then playing with people, talking to them. You know, I'm usually anonymous in these things. So I'm just listening to what people are saying and like listening to them going, Oh, that was cool. Or, Oh, this is awesome. Or have you got this car yet? Or, you know, whatever they may be doing. And that you don't you put know, in that... developer cheat codes so that when you go online, you can just <laughs> automatically unlock something special. And no, <laughs> nah, nah, no unfortunately not. No, but God, the days of cheat codes are gone. Like, surely, surely, uh, those are old SNES things that, yeah. Anyway. Well, uh, a lot of them used to be old debugging things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up, down, left, right, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, multiplayer is my favorite thing because you actually get to hear other players having fun. And we've just added multiplayer into our game right now. The game isn't out until 2013. So, We've just got multiplayer in right now, and I, you know, I'm in the chat room. I'm, the, you know, one of our guys started an unofficial Steam group, just because these guys are so passionate. They absolutely love going behind the scenes, getting that what I always talk about as the backstage pass, going behind the scenes, seeing how the game is made, talking directly to us, all that kind of stuff. And it's just absolutely fantastic listening to those guys and them saying, oh, I just had a really good race, or oh, that bug's still there, that's not fixed yet, and that really motivates you to kind of keep going and. And motivates you that what you're doing is right, as opposed to, as I said, hiding in the dark for three years and then hoping that what you're doing is right when it gets released. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And have you found the community funding that you've been doing on your own to be successful? Have you had more people sign up or give more money than you were expecting initially? Um, can you yeah. release any details about how much money you've earned or how many people have signed up? One of the things that we always promised that we would be is honest and open. If we're allowing all these people in, and all these people are talking anyway. There's no way that we could censor anybody. There's no way that we could hide things from anybody. People always say, oh, have you got more cars and tracks kind of going into the game? And we say, we tell you guys when we find out. We don't want to put your hopes up and say, yeah, we're going to have this car, this car, this car, this track, this track, you know, because the internet is unpleased, right? So as soon as one person said that, that gets spread across all the internet, you know? So we would rather mm-hmm. wait until the signature is on a piece of paper. And as soon as that signature is on a piece of paper, we will then tell you straight away. So honesty and openness is a must for the way of developing that we do. Because we're almost, it's like working in a goldfish bowl anyway. There's only uh, a team of us, and then there are, I think, 80,000 members on the WMD forum. They're all peering into different aspects, whether it's the cars or the vehicles or the physics or the audio or the UI or the game design or whatever. So we learn more about our processes than we would have done if we were doing it privately. 
differently. You know, people go, oh, surely it's easy to actually do that thing. And, you know, it makes us reevaluate. Yeah, it should be easy, shouldn't it? But actually, it's a pain in the ass to actually get that feature or that, <laughs> that whatever it is in, you know. So it really makes us reevaluate our processes. If you sign up and register, we have at the top of the forum how many members there are and how much money they have. How much they've each put in. Contributed, yeah. yes, exactly. So, so if, uh, if anyone wants yeah. to know the number, they can just go to the site. What is it? Yep, exactly. WMDPortal.com? WMDPortal.com, yeah. And if you click on the stats, you can actually see a graph of how that has changed over time as well. So, yeah, if you really wanted to kind of see how things have changed over the last year, then, yeah, you can get all the detail that you want. Now, one of the big news things that came out, but Kickstarters, of course, it's only available for people in the US. So as a Canadian, I can't kickstart any of my projects. Have you given any thought to adding a Kickstarter for project cards to run, I don't know, adjacent to your existing community funding? Um, to be honest, we hadn't thought of that. That would basically mean that you are just donating money. As I said, we've got 80,000 members who have all donated, well not donated, they've become team members and therefore are treated as members of staff and they get rewards back for that. They get perks for you know, being team members and you wouldn't have those perks for Kickstarter. You know, you'd might get a free t-shirt or something, you know, like the usual kind of Kickstarter perks. But, you know, the perks that you get when you're a WMD member are things like, you know, you can talk to us directly. You get your name in the game if you want. You get exclusive access to cars and tracks, more regular builds, depending on your team membership status. So those things are all built into our system already. Kickstarter, we wouldn't be able to do any of that. You wouldn't have a forum username. You wouldn't be able to plug into our system. We wouldn't be able to work out who's attached to which payment, all that kind of stuff. So we're not actively looking into it currently. All right, excellent. Well, uh, that about runs out my giant list of questions. <laughs> so do you have any questions for me? Uh, no, I mean, like, what's your, what are you playing at the moment? Right now I'm playing the new XCOM game that was just released. Ah, right. I was about to, before I came on this interview... Uh, so yeah, okay, you're not, you're not the first person who said it's pretty amazing, so. Well, I, I didn't say it was pretty amazing, I just said that's, that's what I'm going to Oh, right, okay. <laughs> so you have reservations then, do you? <laughs> uh, well, it, it has some interesting reservations. I think it's been redesigned to appeal to a broader audience, is the gentle way of saying things. Okay. Saying dumbed down would be the more brutal approach to it. Um. <laughs> so you've picked up on something there which has a lot of uh, conversation around, which is that just because you've broadened the appeal to a more casual audience doesn't mean that you've dumbed it down. I mean, in actual fact, you've probably made things slightly easier to access as opposed to... Well, I just you know, mean from the perspective of you, you reduce complexity by reducing player choices. For example, right. in XCOM, you can only carry one additional item. In the traditional XCOM, you had a, a whole complex grid system of inventory where you could put all manner of different items as long as they count up to the right number of squares. Right. But uh, it, it would be like if they took Diablo 3 and then they took out the inventory entirely and every time you walk across an item it either automatically sold if it was mathematically deemed less good than what you currently uh, okay. have or automatically replaced and then the item that you currently had was sold. <laughs> you know, it's like if they just took the inventory out entirely and you just walked over loot and it automatically well, upgraded for you. That, that would certainly be in... dumbing it down. <laughs> Isn't that what happened in Mass Effect 2? The inventory was taken out. And yes, of... and the, the ammo. I, I know, yeah, Mass yes. Effect 2, they got rid of ammo in favor of just heat or whatever. And then they had auto-heal. I know a lot of games, they'd get rid of healing items in favor of just you stop getting oh, attacked, yeah. you auto-heal. I guess what bugged me in XCOM was they eliminated the inventory system. They eliminated or they significantly reduced team size. So instead of having 
I think up to 16 team members in some of the original XCOMs. You now have a four, which is upgraded to six. So significantly smaller team. The mechanical robotic companion takes up one spot instead of three spots. So as a result, is significantly weaker. The tech progression, you only have standard weapons and then it doesn't go very far past laser and plasma versus some of the original ones where they had, you know, 10, 12 different tech levels. You're constantly upgrading your, your arsenal. I just feel that they've certainly focused more on the story. They've made the story more accessible. They've made the gameplay more accessible. They've made the decision-making a bit simpler and more streamlined. At least they've kept the turn-based aspect of it in play. But again, the original XCOM, you had a limited number of action points, which you could distribute amongst attacks and movement. Now you just have two actions per turn, only one of which can be an attack. So you can't optimize to the certain right. same degree that you could in the original XCOM where you could have one guy with 10 attacks per round if he has a really fast gun. So that's what I mean by dumbing down. <laughs> so we'll definitely have to catch up with you again when Project Cars is closer to release. So thanks very much for joining us for the very first episode of In Development. This has been Simon Ludgate and Andy Tudor of Slightly Mad Studios. And he was slightly mad enough to join us for this podcast. Thank you very much. 